As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, today we're asking on the program Is Open Theism a Heresy? John E. Sanders is one of a number of evangelical theologians, such as Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock, amongst others, who have embraced open theism, the view that God does not predetermine all events, but the future is in some way open. It perhaps can lead to the controversial view that God is not omniscient. He doesn't necessarily have foreknowledge of all future events. In fact, John Sanders coined a term dynamic omniscience, which I'm sure he'll be able to enlighten us on uh, later on in today's programme. Uh, so we're asking, is open theism philosophically and biblically tenable, or is it a heresy? Does it deny a fundamental aspect of God's nature and Christian doctrine? Well, James White says, yes, it is a heresy. Uh, James is the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. He's been on the show a number of times before. Um, he's a long-standing Calvinist author, speaker, and debater. He hosts a weekly podcast, The Dividing Line. Um, and he believes that God's sovereignty means that everything has been predestined by God in order that all things ultimately reflect to his glory. Uh, and we're going to be hearing why he sees in very stark terms the issues around open theism. He says it's not a secondary issue when it comes to Christian theology. This is of prime importance. Uh, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll obviously have to try and define things as we go along, gentlemen, because uh, there'll be a lot for people who perhaps haven't really come across open theism to work out along the way. Um, so, first of all, uh, welcome along to the program, James, joining me in the London studio here. Great to have you. Um, it's good to be back. You're just on a leg, a sort of return journey from doing some debates and things in South Africa, aren't you? Yeah, I did some lectures uh, out at Northwest University in Pachastrum, and I was in Cape Town and Johannesburg. We had a debate at the University of Johannesburg. So I've been out for a while, uh, but we're going to do, do things here as well, and then finally get back where it's going to be about 42, 43 degrees in Phoenix when I get back. Well, we've not been doing too badly just recently ourselves here in the UK, but uh, I don't think we can compete with the Phoenix <laughs> weather. No. Um, but it's lovely to have you. It's been a little while since it you has. joined me in studio. 
Um, and uh, next week, because we're going to kind of do two shows with you, James, while I've got you, we'll, we'll be doing a call-in sort of uh, dis- discussion with a few different questions coming your way. And, and when we get to that one, I'd like to ask you also about what you thought of some recent unbelievable programmes, which I know <laughs> you sometimes comment on on your, your own programme. I do. Uh, you're free, you feel free to share your opinions, and, and I always enjoy it. <laughs> I, I do. Um, so, um, so we'll get to that. But um, let's meet our other guest on today's programme, who is new to the programme, and that's Johnny e. Sanders joining us on the phone from the US. Say, uh, John, welcome along. Good morning. It's great or to have you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon in our case, but uh, that's fine. Um, so, uh, John, just quick background to yourself. Um, you've been a theologian pretty much all, all of your adult life, have you? Yes. So I've been working in uh, the fields of biblical studies, philosophy, history of Christianity. Um, so those are the main uh, field or disciplines that I use to, to do theology. Mm. Um, how long have you held to an open theism sort of view of God's sovereignty? Oh, probably 25 years or so. Um, I was first introduced to the idea while I was in seminary, and uh, it didn't have a name then, uh, just some different uh, ideas, and uh, those were pieced together. Um, and eventually I began picking up a number of of Christian philosophers and theologians who were, you know, suggesting these things. And so uh, what happened was, once I began teaching, I formed a team uh, of Clark Pinnock and Richard Rice and Hasker and Basinger, and uh, that's when we decided to use the term open theism for this particular model. Mm. Now, um, that that has caused some ripples, obviously, in theological circles. I mean, um, before we come to your definition your, yourself of what open theism is. Has your academic career been affected by your embracing this particular view? Well, yes. Uh, my previous school, um, <clears throat> the president uh, uh, was put under pressure by certain trustees, and uh, not because the open theism disagreed with the statement of faith of the college, uh, that there was an inquiry into that, but that... Uh, there was nothing there in the statement of faith that went against open theism. Um, <clears throat> but nonetheless, uh, the president finally decided that uh, the controversy was too much for fundraising and other um, recruitment and that. And so he asked me uh, to leave. And so mm. um, I had to um, leave that school and find a different place to teach. You have debated, James, uh, who joins me today before, haven't you? I mm-hmm. think in about 2001. Um, so is that wow, that long yeah, ago? Apparently, <laughs> okay. according to James. Yeah. So, um, so, so it's been it's been a while. Fifteen years on, we're we're kind of yeah. touching the same issues. Obviously, um, have your views moved on in any way since that first debate you had with James? Well, in terms of open theism, I, I've developed uh, ideas more fully, explained. Um, you know, there's been a, you know a number of really fine criticisms. I mean, that's one of the things that happens in scholarship is you put ideas out and people say, well, what about this? And and you have to respond. And so uh, the model is is continuing, just like any theological model. There are questions um, that have to be addressed, and people are working on. Uh, there's mm. there's a whole number of doctoral dissertations uh, today you know, that, that have been done and are going on on particular aspects of open theism. So I, I've I wouldn't say there's been any, I have not made any serious changes mm. uh, or substantive changes, but there are certainly um, modifications and, and nuances that have been added. 
Now, obviously, you're, you're coming today to the discussion with the view that, no, open theism is, is not a heresy, um, yeah. though I, I guess you would acknowledge it is a, a novel way of looking oh, at God's, a, God's sovereignty. Yeah, it's a distinct minority position in the Christian tradition. I, mm. I, I own that, yes. Well, maybe the, the best way to get into this would be actually for, for James to, to give us a sense of what, how you would characterize open theism. What, you know, if, if you would ask someone to ask you, what is open theism? You, what, what would be your general answer to that? And uh, acknowledging that there are different varieties, of course. Of, there, of there are definitely different varieties, but at least for the purposes of our conversation. The idea is that, that God has all knowledge of what can be known, but the future is, it does not actually exist. And therefore, uh, God knows uh, perfectly what he has done in the past, what he's doing right now, and what he will do in the future out of his own free will. Uh, But God cannot know the actions of free will creatures, because if he does, uh, then they're not really free actions. Mm. And so there is a a risk-taking model. Uh, God has taken a risk uh, in the creation of the universe, and there is a uh, concept of interaction between free creatures and God that fundamentally alters the the course of future events. Mm. And so, God in ways that God would not foreknow. Well, uh, and this is this is something that's important. Uh, in and uh, when we discussed this uh, many many years ago, I, I asked, did God know? Uh, that John Sanders or James White uh, would exist when he created, because every one of us is the result of many thousands of free will choices. Mm. And if God cannot know those things, then God could not know that I as an individual was going to exist. And um, I I believe, you know, I'll let Dr. Sanders answer that, but for most open theists, uh, that's part of the risk. That's part of the the interaction and the the excitement of of Mm. of the position. Okay. Um, We'll come to you, obviously, for your take on why you you don't believe it, James, and, and, you know, your own particular view of sovereignty yourself. But, um, John, uh, did did, did James more or less fairly frame the position, and do you have anything to add to it? Yeah, the only thing I would add immediately is that uh, what God knows of uh, our future actions is the possibilities. So it's not that God doesn't uh, can't anticipate what's going to happen. So the question is, did God know prior to creation that uh, I would exist? Well, God knew the possibility that I would exist. So uh, the the dominant view in open theism is that God knows all possible futures, mm. but not which one will be the actual future. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that is an important distinction there. Um, okay, so, um, so, so yes. But, but not yeah. in the Molinistic sense. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so let's middle, let's let's talk about that. Or... Okay. <laughs> Before we run on, I mean, I was going to ask yep. us to just to define open theism against some of the other okay. contenders yep. out there. So, okay. Arminian view of free will. Um, would you like to say, John, what that what you take that to be, and how open theism is distinct from an Arminian view of God's sovereignty? Yeah. <clears throat> so the the traditional, what I call the free will tradition in the church, which predates Augustine and predates Arminius, but Arminius and Wesleyanism um, and Pentecostalism all uh, link into this uh, historic tradition, is that uh, God foresees what's going to happen, but doesn't determine. God's knowledge of what God sees 
does not determine what happens. Mm-hmm. Instead, God sees things and says, oh, I don't want that to happen, and so God takes actions to attempt to change things. Um, and they have, uh, the free will tradition, of course, affirms what we typically think of as you know, free will. Um, and so creatures can resist God, and creatures can do what God doesn't want. And so the risk is built into that model. Um, now, they seek to mitigate the risk by saying that God foreknows uh, the future, foresees uh, the future. Um, and so open theism is part of that family of uh, free will theologies. It's very, very old. Mm. But it wants to make two important qualifications in that model. So it's ve- so. let me say, open theism is definitely in the free will model, not what I call the theological determinist mm-hmm. or what's often known as Calvinist model. Mm-hmm. Right? But Cal- of course, the Calvinist model predates Calvin. Yes. But So theological determinism is a very old tradition as well. Um, so open theism is in the free will tradition, and it, but it says, look, there's two, way, two aspects that, uh, of the nature of God that we think need to be corrected here. One is uh, that God does not experience time, temporal duration. And so uh, that's been the subject of long discussion in the Church, and we take a position that God does experience temporal sequence. Mm-hmm. The other, and, and this is the lightning rod issue, which you introduced the program, God does not know the future actions of free creatures with certainty. Okay, and that is as knowledge. God mm. doesn't mm. know them. Mm. God has knowledge of the possibilities of what we will do sure. and probabilities, what, what we're likely to do. And so that's the other modification of the free will tradition. Mm. So dynamic omniscience is that God knows all the past, all the present, and the possibilities and probabilities of the future. So it's that that has become the light. Yes. Okay. And finally, Molinism, which James mentioned here, because what you were describing did to me sound a little bit like that. um, God knowing the possibilities, but that's not actually what you were describing. No, in Molinism, it's also called middle knowledge. That view says, yes, God knows possibilities. But middle knowledge is the idea that God knows what you would do. So take Susan. Uh, who is going to the store and has to decide whether she's going to spend money for a certain product. And she says, well, the children need, you know, cereal for breakfast or something. Um, and she has to decide which kind of cereal. So God knows what she would decide, which, which brand of cereal she would purchase in any given situation. So if she went to this store, she would buy oatmeal. If she went to this store, she would buy, you know, cornflakes or something like that. So it's what not just what she might do, which is open theism. Mm. It's what she actually would do. So that's a different model of, of uh, omniscience. Uh, as I understand it, though, the Molinist is still trying to kind of um, have free will by the oh, fact yes. that um, yes. God, that the, the, the decisions that are made are freely chosen, but God's put them in the circumstances that make sure that right. his will ultimately is carried out within exactly. that because he knows what they would do freely right. in those circumstances. Um, yeah, very but, well. it, but it's very through well tremendous. Well. But it's through tremendous micromanagement, <laughs> uh, which yeah, is really yeah. it, it, it's really a, a long ways from the open theistic okay. perspective. Yeah. Well, we're not here yeah. to debate Molinism. We'd need someone who who takes that view to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, James is smiling right for some reason. Um, 
Let, let's um, let's let's talk about uh, Calvinism and open theism then for the rest of the discussion. And um, if you're interested in getting in touch about today's program, uh, perhaps uh, this is a uh, kind of issues that that really turn you on and you want to kind of get and go involved in the debate. Uh, you can email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Uh, you can send me a tweet, a Facebook message. Uh, get in touch with the show. Basically, uh, all the links available from the website where you can find today's program as a downloadable show get the podcast and all the rest. That's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. So we're asking today, is open theism a heresy? My guests are John E. Sanders. He's an open theist. Uh, He's one among a number of evangelical theologians taking this position on the sovereignty of God. Uh, Essentially, the future is open. Um, God doesn't necessarily have foreknowledge of all future events. Um, Things could turn out differently. Um, John Sanders has coined it a dynamic omniscience. Uh, James White says it is a heresy. Um, He says that is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, It is not what Christians should believe. Uh, It's doctrinally incorrect. Okay, James, so um, tell us, um, what what are your chief concerns with open theism? Um, Why fundamentally do you think it it doesn't pass the test um, of of being orthodox? Well, first and foremost for me, um, it, it takes away from us the primary mechanism that God himself gave to his people for recognizing the true God over against false gods. When you read the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 to 48, a repeated emphasis, uh, biblically speaking, in determining who the true God is over against false gods is the true God has knowledge of future events, not just, well, a predictive knowledge, but it is a certain knowledge, and it is knowledge that involves the actions of free creatures. It's not just, well, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. It's, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what people are going to do, and my purpose is going to be established, and it's not like I'm just interacting with people, and, and it may go this way, and it may go that way. If that is the one of the very issues that God gives us in recognizing who the true God is, once you take that away, um, and I'm, I'm not sure, uh, Dr. Sanders and I did not discuss this in our formal debate on the subject, but uh, I debated another a- open theist a couple of years ago, And one of the issues that came up was Jesus with the disciples in John chapter 13. And before his betrayal, um, he, of course, tells the disciples about about Judas. Uh, Not by name, obviously, but he says, one of you you dips the hand, so on and so forth, lift up the heel against me, so on and so forth. And in John 13, 19, he actually quotes from Isaiah 43, 10. It's a text about Jehovah God where Jehovah is saying, before it comes to pass, I'm going to tell you, so that when it does come to pass, you may believe that, and then he uses the Hebrew phrase, anahu, which comes into the Septuagint as ego imi, the I am saying. So Jesus uses in John 8, 24, 8, 58, 13, 19, 18, 5 through 6. These are key texts regarding the deity of Christ. And as you know, I deal with, with Islam, mm-hmm. with Jehovah's Witnesses, things like that. And so here in a in a very important text, Jesus is saying, when this takes place, and what what is it that takes place? His betrayal at the hands of Judas. Now, if Judas is a is a free creature that God cannot know what he's going to do, mm. then Judas might not have, you know, at the last moment, yeah. he might have said, you know, I'm going to do the right Change thing. His, mind, yeah. his, his heart might have been softened, you know, you know who, who knows? Um, but everything would have changed. Yeah. And the very mechanism that Jesus had provided to his disciples for knowing he's the I am would be taken away. And so it's it's not just a well, 
one model over here, another model over here. As, as far as I can see, the, the Bible gives us very clear teaching on the fact that one of the strongest emphases in the apostolic period was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, look at any biblical prophecy. It's the result of literally thousands of free will choices by human beings. If those things are unknown, um, you know, even even giving the name of Cyrus or something like that, something very specific like that, not just mm. vague things like God's going to win in the end. Mm. You know, we're, mm. we're, we're talking specific things that are then fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And, and then according to Luke chapter 24, when Jesus rises from the dead, what does he do? The first thing he emphasizes to the disciples when he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opens their minds yeah. to understand the scriptures. He meets with the apostles, uh, opens their minds to understand the scriptures. What? The prophetic word. And he was testified to from, from, from Genesis the yeah. all the way through the beginning. So this is a big issue for open theists because your contention is on open theism. No prophecy is ever it's conditional. As it's always conditional. It, well, the, the, and so God right. can never kind of, as it were... Well, there's two different kinds. There's, there's, there's conditional prophecies that would involve the actions of creatures, and then there's unconditional prophecies that are just simply things God himself is going to do so, that so are not So a conditional dependent. prophecy would be, unless you repent and turn from your ways, I will bring judgment. So there's a sort of a... Yeah, he's going to set up certain conditions, and it depends on man's yeah. reaction as to what's going to happen. From my perspective, it's very clear to me that uh, there are prophecies about what specific individuals are going to do that are not just simply conditioned. They are, they are saying, I'm going to accomplish it, and I'm going to accomplish it this way, even to the point where you have hardening of hearts, destruction mm-hmm. of nations, all sorts of things. And God says, what I do, I'm going to accomplish. Okay, Let, let's talk about prophecy then, John. Is this a real issue for the open theist? Well, uh, the way it's been understood, uh, prophecy in evangelicalism, and then if you look at the way prophecy has been understood throughout the history of Christianity, there, there's a variety of views. So um, let's just deal with it within evangelicalism. So um, first of all, um, the idea that this is a test of uh, divinity in Isaiah. So in The God Who Risks, my book, The God Who Risks, I... Uh, Bring out Bruce Ware is the one who made this claim first, and um, that Isaiah is saying, "Look, uh, and that is God is saying, uh, I'm declaring this is going to happen because I have foreseen it, and uh, because I have foreseen it, this proves that I'm God." When I have a different reading of the passage uh, of Isaiah, what Isaiah is saying, God is saying in Isaiah is, "I am going to determine this event." And it will happen. And that event is the, ex- the return from the exile. The Jewish people will return from the exile. And I'm going to bring it about. And it's not up to free will. This is the way it's going to happen. Okay. So then it's a question of does God have the power to do that? It's not a question of God foreseeing the future. And this is just an re- absolute red herring for Calvinists because Calvinists don't believe God foresees the future. And hence, ah, so now I know what's going to happen. I can determine the future. No. God determines the future. And that's why God foreknows it. So the, the, the claim that this is a big deal uh, by a Calvinist, I, I think, is just empty uh, rhetoric. Now, uh, let me uh, also then say, why do open theists believe this about, about God? Well, because we look at passages in the Bible where God responds to prayers of petitions, like Hezekiah or Moses. And it seems that God responds to their prayer, which is a common evangelical you know, practice in prayer. Secondly, God grieves over sin. Well, why would God grieve if it's exactly what God determined would happen? 
we have words uh, such as perhaps, God says in Jeremiah, perhaps you would do this, or if Israel repents. Uh, why is God using language like that? Why does God put Abraham and Israel to the test and then say, now I know? So God puts them to the test to find out what, what, what they will do. And God changes the divine mind at certain times, over three dozen references to God changing the divine mind. So these are the kinds of texts that we look at. And then when it comes to prophecy, or let me say predictions of, of the future, you have statements in the Bible where God says, this is going to happen, and it happens. And then you have statements in the Bible where God says, this is going to happen, and it does not happen. So Ezekiel 26 and some others, where God uh, tells the, uh, Ezekiel uh, that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy the city of Tyre. And he didn't say, well, actually only the mainland, not the island in the harbor. He's not going to capture that. But Ezekiel 29 then says, hmm, Nebuchadnezzar didn't capture the city of Tyre. Okay. So you have biblical texts in which biblical predictions that come about, and God says, this is going to happen, and it happens. And then you have others where God says, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. So open theism is an attempt to explain all those patterns. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, go, it, go ahead. It, it, so, so for you, it, it, it explains more of the data in that sense. Just, I just want to come back to the example James did give initially of, of Judas and Jesus' prediction that he would be betrayed by Judas. Um, right. would, was it possible on, a, on an open theistic understanding for Judas to have not betrayed Jesus? Uh, Jesus? Okay, so open theists don't agree on how to handle uh, the Judas case. So there are some open theists, and by the way, this goes back to the you know, early 1700s, some of these people who made these ideas. So um, some open theists have said that uh, Judas did not have free will in that case. It had to be done in order to bring about uh, the cross. And other open theists say, no, 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 uh, Judas could have uh, repented. Now, given you know, the condition of him, it's not likely that he would. Uh, he has certain plans, and he's carrying them out, and God is very much aware of those plans that he's made and arrangements he's made with the high priests and the Jew Jewish rulers. So um, it's very likely to happen. So I'm more, uh, I, I go more with that view, uh, the second uh, alternative myself. Okay. So it could have been different. The biblical text then would be different. Right. Uh, that story may may have been written differently. Then. Okay. So so, yeah. Well, that would be a, an interesting alternative version. Okay. But James, before well, we go to a break, just, I'm not sure. Just quickly, I, I, I'm not sure how to say that that's an alternative version. I mean, it would have been written differently. Uh, in other words, Jesus would have given a false prophecy, and then when it be, went false, then they fixed it. Uh, and to try to parallel that with with very difficult historical fulfillment issues in regards to warfare. Uh, six centuries before Christ, uh, I think you have a really uh, stark uh, example right there. And I wasn't certain what Dr. Sanders meant when he said that it was it was a red herring to raise this issue, because very briefly uh, in Isaiah 41, uh, the scripture says, uh, in challenging the false gods, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Now, it's not just a challenge to say what's going to come. It's also a challenge to say what happened in the past and, and here's, here's the key, why did it happen? And you see, historians can tell you what happened in the past. Well, most of the time they can anyway. It's not always. But, but the why issue 
And see, this gets back to, does God have a decree? When Job in Job 23 says, God is unchangeable and he has many decrees, was he telling the truth or was he not? That really is the issue. And what's the nature of that decree? We're going to take a quick break and uh, we're going to come back to this issue. Uh, we're, we're getting to a really lively discussion today on open theism. Is it a heresy? We're asking. John E. Sanders is our open theist on the line from the States. James White with me in studio here uh, says, yes, it is a heresy. And uh, we're going to hear how John responds in a moment's time. This is the program that aims to get you thinking every Saturday afternoon. And don't forget, we're online as well. PremierChristianRadio.com slash unbelievable. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to today's edition of Unbelievable. Uh, Today we're asking, is open theism a heresy? Uh, Do make sure to listen to the end of today's program, though. You'll hear some feedback to previous editions of the show. And uh, we're going to be giving you more information on this year's conference, of course. Unbelievable, the conference coming Saturday, the 2nd of July, 2016 in central London Uh, it's going to be a fabulous day of uh, loads of speakers thinkers apologists helping you to think through how you can do evangelism better how you can be more effective evangelist in your Christian walk so uh, if you're interested in finding out more ticketing options all the rest of it go to premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 um, normally on the show, most of the time at least, we're doing Christian, non-Christian discussions, but we like to break it out into a bit of a theological debate every so often, and that's what James and John join me for today. Uh, John E. Sanders is among a number of evangelical theologians, such as people like Greg Boyd, who have embraced what's called open theism, the view that God doesn't actually predetermine all events, but that the future is open. Um, it leads to the, some would say, very controversial view that God is not omniscient. He doesn't necessarily have foreknowledge of all future events, because he's left that open because of the free will of the creatures he's created um so is it uh, philosophically biblically tenable is it a heresy james white says yes it is he's of course well known as the director of alpha and omega ministries long-standing calvinist author speaker and debater and hosts the weekly podcast the dividing line um so um we're going to come back to this um uh, john and uh, just in that last section james was essentially saying uh you look at Isaiah and that passage he was reading and it was all about a challenge to these people who believed in these pagan gods well then 
have your God tell us what will happen in the future and explain why things happened in the past. This is almost like the uh, yeah the, the litmus test for the characteristics of a true God. And um, and he's I guess James's point is at the end of the day the open theist God does not pass the test that Isaiah set. Is that what you're saying? Well, and, and in essence, I would I would wonder if Dr. Sanders still believes what he said in 2001 um, in regards to. Uh, the fall of Adam, uh, that this was something that actually was surprising to God, that though he knew the possibilities, that that this was something that was... And if it was a surprise to God, then that means everything afterwards, including... The plan of salvation. The plan of salvation, redemption, incarnation, everything else. Um, Are you sort of saying that, that? That, that open theism makes the whole thing a bit ad hoc in that sense? Well, obviously, I have I just do not see that the God of Scripture is saying that I am doing what I'm doing in response to what's gone wrong, uh, and I, I've come up with a really great plan here. Instead, I see the triune God from eternity past determining to glorify himself through the incarnation, through the redemption of a particular people in Christ Jesus, and it's a particular people. I, th- th- another one, my, my issues, especially from a sp- specifically Reformed perspective, is if, if God only knew the possibility that you might exist— um, but did not know whether that would be fulfilled, then there can't be a decree of election. And obviously, from, from my perspective, yes, that, then, uh, then election itself becomes something that is a, an election of a group, not individuals within that group. And so it becomes impersonal. So that's another one of the issues. Now, that's obviously from a Reformed perspective, yeah. but I think that is uh, vitally important when it comes to the atonement as well. John, um, there are quite a few things to, to potentially pick up on there. Um, I don't know, if, though, if you want to respond, first of all, to the issue of that passage was it Isaiah Isaiah 41 uh, where where apparently you know the the litmus test for God is whether God knows the future and and so on yeah well uh, just to reiterate what I said was the litmus test is whether God has the power to bring about what God said is going to happen in those passages it's not about foreknowledge it's about divine power so we just have a different understanding of what the litmus test is there secondly he said then uh if God proclaims, uh, Dr. White said, if God proclaims that X is going to happen, an event's going to happen, and it does not happen, then God uh, utters a false prophecy. And then in that case, then Ezekiel 26 is a false prophecy, according to that way of thinking. But most people in history have said, no, 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 it's a conditional prophecy. And so the question, the debate for me really is, how many conditional predictions are there in the Bible? I think most of them are, pre- are conditional predictions. And uh, some of the people say, no, 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 none of them are, because they're all, uh, you know, God has determined everything. So if God has determined everything, then you have the problem of Ezekiel 26, and God saying, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Well, if God determined that Nebuchadnezzar would never capture Tyre, then he should have said, you know what, I'm not going to make this statement to Ezekiel, because it'll look bad. It'll be a false prophecy, according to uh, James White's definition. Um, this, this Ezekiel passage, James, do you want to address this and, and what it is that that, well, that, that uh, John is claiming didn't happen and therefore, on your view, would turn out to be a false prophecy? On his view, he says, actually, it's just a conditional prophecy and it didn't come about. Well, there, there are a lot of, of, of texts. This, this, this one's the easiest one for, and it's not just open theists who use it. Uh, Muslims use it. Uh, Mormons have used it to uh, allege the, uh, the, the corruption of Scripture. Um, a lot of people who attack inerrancy uh, utilize it. 
Um, and, and that's what makes it a little bit odd to be hearing it in this particular context is I'm normally dealing with subjects like this with, with atheists, not with, with Christians. And so that's, that's one of the problems that I have here. The, as I mentioned just briefly before, uh, there are all sorts of uh, difficulties in determining exactly what took place uh, historically, especially before the time of Christ, in regards to fulfillments, especially of small judgment pericopes in this this section or that section, and as he mentioned briefly, there there was uh, partial fulfillments. Is that meant to be the full fulfillment? There's a, a number of, of of things where once further discoveries are made, allegations in the past of false prophecies have been able to be clarified because oh we didn't we didn't know this had happened we didn't know that had happened, and I'm I'm a little bit concerned when you have such clear teaching uh, of Scripture uh, being based upon, well, this uh, particular prophecy back here allegedly didn't happen the way that we think it should have been, so this would be a false prophecy. And that means that Jesus is telling the disciples, when this happens, you will know that I am, could also not happen, and the entirety of the work of redemption would have to be done in a different way. Putting those two things together to me is is extremely problematic because we don't we have all sorts of information about the Judah situation. We're given enough to be able within the text of Scripture to know whether it was fulfilled or not. We don't have that kind of information historically mm-hmm. in regards to a bunch of stuff that is that is mentioned in warfare in the the ancient East six hundred years before Christ. I mean, coming back then to to perhaps you know the, the example of, of Judas and so on. James is is almost stunned, I think, John, to the, the the idea that you could envisage that perhaps it could have gone a different direction, and that you know, in theory, Jude, Judas could have um, chosen not to betray Jesus, and we might have had a completely different story of of how God eventually. Um, produced a salvation plan but uh, the the main problem he says is simply that jesus would have been wrong um do does that really strike you as a conditional prophecy when he says one of you will betray me well again open theists have two different interpretations of that so one group says uh that uh, judas does not have free will here this is a, a determined event to, to bring about a particular uh, plan of redemption uh another uh, group says no it is a conditional um, uh, prediction, and God is working with uh, human freedom, and uh, has a plan. And given what uh, the religious authorities want and what the mm-hmm. Roman authorities are interested in, uh, God has a good plan to bring this about, and, and works through these people. So there are two different ways of understanding uh, that here. But but here's but the also. But John, if I could, wait, just, if I, John, if please, I could, no, no, okay, right. no, no, okay. I want to say one other thing. So I'm really disappointed that you sought to link open theism with uh, atheist criticisms, Muslim criticisms. That's a typical response, unfortunately, too often, from Calvinist critics of open theism, and I think that's just ridiculous. There are biblical scholars who deal with the Isaiah passages, Frederick Lindstrom and others, and to, to, and they, I, I'm just re- reading their work, and uh, saying what, what they have said. And then to, but to link us, but, you know, guilt by association, and sort of, that, that's just a low blow. I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't arguing, I wasn't, I wasn't arguing guilt by association. I was, however, arguing that uh, it, you clearly uh, do not stand in the tradition of believing in inerrancy, for example, uh, or redefine it greatly, and uh, it, w- it took years 
of dealing with exactly those texts from atheists and from Mormons and Muslims before I ever heard anyone else utilizing that kind of argumentation. So it wasn't guilt by association, but it, it does point to the, the fundamental fact that even you said that if Judas had done something differently, then the narrative would be written differently. And I think that's a fundamental issue that, that we're dealing with here. And I just, I just point out that in John 13, there is a purpose stated by Jesus to disciples so that when it does come to pass, you may know that I am he. And so if it doesn't come to pass, then the very purpose that Jesus had in bringing his disciples to understand who he is, is no longer fulfilled. So Jesus may want his disciples to know who he is, but the very means that he gives them to know is actually a conditional thing that might not actually be fulfilled. Yeah. So the way uh, we, we view this is largely through the lens of passages in Jeremiah where God says, if I say this is going to happen to a country, I'm going to raise it up. But it does badly and treats people horribly and does injustice, then I won't do that. And if I say to a country, I'm going to tear you down and destroy you, but the nation repents and does uh, properly to widows and orphans, well, then I reserve the right to change my mind about that. And we see that in passages like uh, Samuel and uh, Saul, where God says originally uh, Saul is going to be, his family will be kings forever in Israel, but Saul turns out to act unjustly and not obey God. And so God changes the divine mind and removes Saul's family and institutes David's family. And so God has the right to uh, deal with people in these ways and to change the divine mind and to utter conditional statements, even if they're not stated with the word if. So many of the biblical predictions can be conditional, even like Ezekiel 26 is not stated with an if. But almost all biblical commentators treat it as a conditional. So I'm saying that uh, these things are conditional. Jesus is working with the disciples. He's trying to get uh, Peter, for instance, to take a different path. Uh, I think the, um, you know, why do you announce, hey, you're in big trouble, and this is what's going to happen in the, in the Old Testament? is to get Israel to change her ways. And so I see the same kinds of moves by God going on in the New Testament. I think there's some real uh, issues uh, that I didn't get to address earlier in some of the texts that were brought forward. One of them was Abraham and the testing of Abraham. And now I know. And, and I, I just want to point out, I don't think open theism actually uh, solves the issue of what was going on in Genesis at that point. Because if God knew Abraham perfectly— this, this is the testing of Abraham. The testing of him by the offering of Isaac. And, yeah. and God saying, now I know, now that, I know that you will do my will. Exactly. If, if we actually take that to be, to, in, in, in ironically, literal, literal sense, that God didn't know uh, because he does not know what free will creatures are going to do, then what do we really mean to say that God knows us intimately? Did God not know Abraham as well the day before as the day after? And even more, if free will is this absolutely inviolable thing, which I, I wonder about the hardening of hearts that might destroy nations and stuff like that. I wonder about Paul's free will when he gets knocked off his, his donkey and, and converted on the road to Damascus. But if that's such an inviolable thing, then couldn't the next day Abraham have changed and became unfaithful to, to his God? I mean, those, those things have to be left open if you're going to maintain this system of 
the absolute emphasis upon human autonomy. And obviously, from my perspective, uh, I believe God's freedom is the basis of any meaningful understanding of human freedom. And God has a purpose that he's going to accomplish. And it just seems to me that if, for example, he works everything out to where you've got the 12 disciples and you've got all the, the leaders and, and, and all set up, and then it could all change because Judas decides, eh, I'm not going to go this direction, and, and, and now you're going to have to do it in some other way. That kind of, of a focus is the exact opposite of what the early church had. Because when the early church began to be persecuted, what did they do in Acts chapter 4? When they got together and prayed, they said, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans were gathered together against your holy servant to do what? What your hand and your will predestined to take place. Now look at all the free will choices involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at Herod and Pilate. Man, two completely different people. I mean, Herod is just loopy. He's, 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 he's out there in, in the ozone someplace. Pilate is the scheming politician. And yet their wills are under the sovereign decree of God as to what they're going to do. Before John comes back on this, as a Calvinist, are you still happy to affirm the idea of free will? Because I think a lot of people assume a Calvinist doesn't believe in free will. Well, uh, obviously, uh, down through history, that has been defined in two different ways. Uh, you have libertarian freedom and you have compatibilistic freedom. So obviously we don't have a lot of time to develop it, but I would, I would go to Genesis chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 10, Acts chapter 4, and say that the biblical teaching is these men did what they desired to do. Um, God wasn't behind them. Uh, they weren't innocent people and God's forcing them to do bad things. Mm. Uh, if, if in anything, especially in Genesis chapter 50 with the brothers of Joseph, um, in that situation, God is actually restraining their evil because remember, they want to kill him mm-hmm. and he restrains them and keeps them from doing that. And so uh, they act upon their own will. They do what they desire to do. And yet it is very clear in each one of those passages that what they did was exactly what God had intended to do in Genesis 50 to save many people alive to this day, to continue the line that was prophesied in the Protevangelium mm-hmm. back in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you know, could, could, could the Protevangelium have had been falsified by human actions? I mean, think of how many thousands of generations. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting as well as getting your response to what James had to say uh, before that to, to, to get your take on why it's so important as an open theist, John, that free will is of a, 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 perhaps of a stronger variety than James gives it there. But, um, I mean, coming back to this issue that, that James raises, which is for him it just seems like the whole of the salvation plan of from time eternity seems to be kind of made up on the hoof almost it has to be by god if um if there's always the chance that people will um go go a different direction not do what he's you know has in in mind um and so on you know if abraham had turned out not to be trustworthy well would he have had to use a a different vessel than the jewish people to bring about his purposes and and so on i mean what's your view on that is 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 it the case that um you know it all could have been different if people had taken different free will choices well yes i'm in the free will tradition so uh this issue actually isn't um you know limited to open theism so when you have theological determinism versus the free will tradition in the church the free will tra- tradition says that God wants people to act in certain ways, but cannot control them, uh, or, and, and uh, will not control them because God has given the gift of free will. So people can do things that God doesn't want them uh, to do. So Saul 
uh, God's original plan in First uh, Samuel 15 is that Saul is going to be the king forever, and he has family forever. But Saul doesn't do that, so God says, "All right, uh, then I'm going to Plan B." Um, Moses, uh, uh, God wants Moses to go back to to, to Egypt and uh, speak to uh, Pharaoh and the people. And Moses says, not me. And God says, well, how about your brother Aaron? Let's go to plan B. Tell you what, I'll talk to you, you talk to Aaron, Aaron will talk to Pharaoh. So uh, God works with uh, people and takes, uh, sometimes God says, look, this is the way it's going to be, and, and just because God can bring, uh, bring it about. But most of the time, God works through the free will of people. That's the earliest tradition in the history of the church. And you don't get theological determinism coming on the scene until Augustine, uh, and so the Eastern Orthodox Church and many others, uh, even in the Western Church, uh, have affirmed the free will tradition. So if you're going to go and talk about free will, then it's a bigger tradition, and it's not just open theism. Open theism is part of the free will tradition, and what, what's but it the modifies that tradition. What's the problem for you with the Calvinist kind of limited view of free will that, that James holds? Well, uh, here, I, I'll disagree. I, w- I won't use the term clear teaching of the Bible. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I think the Bible is rather underdetermined when it comes to these philosophical issues. Um, and, and so we can debate this, and we can debate uh, issues such as um, omniscience and the finer points like middle knowledge, um, simple foreknowledge, uh, dynamic omniscience. Uh, but the Bible, to me, is underdetermined on these matters. And so one has to make a theological case from biblical texts, philosophical reasoning, theological ideas, history of traditions in the church. So I think it's a cumulative case that one builds and not just like, oh, here's a biblical text, so that settles it. Uh, And is it important in your view, ultimately, that we do retain the idea of a kind of, um, uh, rather than... Give me the two types of free will again, James. Compatibilistic and libertarian. uh, that, That we do have a libertarian free will. Yes. Right. Because otherwise, we but, what, but what's, the, think, what's the consequence of not having might, that? Right. Some people might argue that's that's the clear teaching of the Bible, and obviously, I think that the, the Bible affirms that. But I I have respected uh, you know peers who uh, affirm compatibilistic freedom, and um, that, that that's what they think is the biblical teaching, and I respect that. I disagree with them. Okay. James. Obviously, I struggle with the idea that the, that the Bible is is underdetermined when we look at, I, if I recall correctly, what I said was the clear teaching of the Bible in regards to what the early church believed in the subject. And so we go back to Acts chapter 4, and so I just have to ask, um, is the prayer in Acts chapter 4, in talking about Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Romans, um, is that an open theist prayer? Uh, or is it a Calvinist prayer? I mean, if we're going to be, let's be nice and anachronistic here. Okay, <laughs> let's let's just just ask the question: uh, When they pray that way, and to say what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, and we're talking about numerous free will choices here, is this one of those? Well, you know, in this instance, their free wills were overridden. The funny thing is, that's not what I would say. I would not say their quote unquote free wills were overridden. I can hear him. Go ahead, John. Well, yeah, you'd say that that God, using compatibilistic freedom, God ensures that their desires will be such that they will act on their desires to bring about what God has uh, foreordained. And and that and that God. How you'd read the passage? Yeah, and that God has restrains evil. I mean, if if uh, 
if uh, one of them had wanted to kill, you know, obviously the Jews wanted to kill Jesus prior to that point in time. It wasn't the proper time. And so, you know, his hour had not yet come, etc. And, and, and these are, again, these are strongly biblical terms, as hour had not yet come. Uh, well, what does that mean if there is not a specific hour fixed by the decree of God? When Jesus says it is necessary uh, that uh, I go to Jerusalem, could could someone in their free could a Roman soldier in their free will have killed Jesus before the cross? Yeah. So this is it, this divide here is not a new divide. Um, this is you know Augustine from the time period of Augustine on. You have theological determinism developing in the church, and they read those passages as as you said in Acts two, in this way, um, the free will tradition. Uh, which you know goes back to Clement of Rome and, and Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr. Um, these people read that passage differently, so we have these two different interpretations, and, what, what, what and they're long-standing interpretations. What, what is your interpretation in that sense then of of what they meant when they said God predestined all these things to happen? You know, all all of these apparently free will choices yeah. that were going on in yeah, in so advance of Jesus' crucifixion. What what did they mean right, by that? Right. Yeah, so in that passage where God says the purpose of, of God, and it says specifically says that these people refuse the purpose of God. So what God wanted to happen uh, wasn't what, what happened, and other events that God did want to happen did happen. No, so I, I see that this is both in the passage. Uh, Dr. Sanders, I, I think we're talking about different texts. Here's, here's the text. For truly in this city, this is the, whole, this is the church uh, praying in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So it wasn't anything about, I wanted them to do this, and they didn't. It's specifically asserting that what happened with Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, which I take as the Romans, and the peoples of Israel was what God intended. It says, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So here you have, if, if you're going to affirm that what Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans did, they did of their free will, their free will acts were predestined by God. So how, how is that text underdetermined? Okay, and as, as you uh, probably know, the word predestined has multiple interpretations. So we, uh, many people use it as equivalent to a Calvinist view. And so my students say, well, Dr. Sanders, do you believe in predestination? I say, well, of course I do. It's a biblical teaching. And they go, oh, I didn't think you were a Calvinist. I'm like, no, I'm not a Calvinist. <laughs> Just as the word baptism has multiple meanings, the Eucharist has multiple meanings, so does uh, the term predestination. So... But just by emphasizing the word predestined in the text isn't going to settle. How issue. would you emphasize it yourself in this in this instance? So I would say that God has um, uh, predetermined that uh, human redemption is going to be brought about uh, through the death of Jesus. And uh, exactly how and when um, uh, God has what, what God, you know, uh, again, this would be as the date draws nearer. So... What I think the question, or one of the questions is often asked, is, well, wait a minute, isn't this planned from the beginning, prior to creation, that Jesus dies on a cross? And I want to say, no, no, it's planned more as, as we get towards the cross. And that's called the, the Scotist view, uh, developed uh, by John Dennis Scotus and Albert the Great in the Middle Ages, that 
the uh, Jesus was always going to become incarnate. That's the plan from the beginning. But that the plan for redemption is God's plan, like, if humans sin, then I'm going to do these kinds of things to bring about redemption. Uh, and in terms of the passage from Acts that James was referring to, you're, you're saying, okay, they're acknowledging that all of these characters had their part to play, but all they're affirming is that God predestined that Jesus would die as a sacrifice for sins, and it just so happens that the way that happened was through the the, the Jewish leaders, the Romans, and, and so on. Well, I don't know to say it just so happens, but that this is, uh, in, in the Incarnation then, um, uh, Jesus is, is questioning, wondering mm. uh, what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, um, you know, what are the alternatives, what's going to happen. And it seems like, no, this is, this is what we need to do. Okay, now. this is and what has to happen right now. And, I mean, there's almost a sense in which when you say that, that God risks something, it, it almost is like a gamble, God kind of, Jesus becoming incarnate at that moment. On an open theist view, I'm getting the sense that nothing was guaranteed that this was kind of going to all pay off in the in the ultimate redemption in Jesus' lifetime because, um, you know, if it didn't happen, Jesus would have simply died of old age in, in that sense. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, well, I'm not sure I'm following your question, but um, there have been some people who, who theologians who have said that uh, Jesus only had to die. It's not how Jesus died. Um that uh, this particular um, uh, event, though, for me, is world-changing. The, mm. it, it's uh, the cross that changes uh, the world because it reveals the divine love uh, for humanity. Um, we're we're going to have to go to a quick break, and uh, we'll come back for final thoughts from you both. It's been a really interesting discussion so far. Open theism, is it a heresy? We've been asking on today's theological edition of Unbelievable. If you want to get in touch with today's program with your thoughts about the discussion, uh, do email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Back with my guests, James White and John E. Sanders, in just a moment's time. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, it's been a really interesting discussion on today's programme, asking whether open theism is a heresy. Um, open theism has been around a while now. Uh, John E. Sanders, uh, one of the uh, higher profile, uh, if you like, advocates of it, uh, along with people like Greg Boyd. Um, the view that God doesn't predetermine all events. The future is open in that sense. It makes space for uh, a real sense of free will. Things could go differently. Um, well, that has all kinds of implications, says James White, who disagrees strongly with, with open theism. Uh, James White is director of Alpha and Amiga Ministries. If you want more info on James, uh, make sure to visit the webpage. Uh, look him up on, on Google. John Sanders as well, of course, has a webpage, and you can find out more about them both from today's edition of Unbelievable at Premier Christian Radio dot com slash unbelievable um, but we've been having a really interesting discussion about what are the implications of the open theist view um, does it mean that the salvation plan could have taken a completely different course you know if free will agents within it had not done the things that they needed to do in order to see jesus crucified and so on um, it, we've talked about whether different views of what predestination might mean and so on um, I mean, one thing that I'm aware of that, that some often open theists would say is helpful on the open theist model is that it means God is not responsible for evil in that sense. Um, it, it really is uh, all about the free will 
of people and um, really from the before the, the creation of the world there's a sort of a cosmic fallout um, and, and the, in a sense it's God therefore you can't lay the blame at God's door for when people die of cancer or are run over by a bus and things like that um, whereas the view is that Calvinism sort of because everything is pre preordained predestined uh, God is obviously responsible therefore for, for the bad things that happen in life as well as the good um, John, it, does this is this a good reason to be an open theist that 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 um, it, it it helps to alleviate the issue of the problem of evil and suffering? Well, that's a big attraction uh, to um, open theism by many people, but I would say that it's really just uh, uh, the free will tradition um, that is being attractive here, uh, not distinctively open theism. I think open theism has ruled out certain explanations of uh, tragic events of evil, but I don't think it's really different from um, mm. the free will tradition. So, yeah, it's one thing to say that God doesn't want these events, uh, uh, tragic events and evil things that, that happen in the world and what we do to each other and kill each other and rape and things. Um, and but, but I'll say I have friends who are Calvinists, and, and they say they're comforted by that, that God wanted this woman raped. Uh, that's part of a plan, and they find comfort in that. Uh, I'm with John Wesley, and that kind of, if that's love, that makes my blood run cold. So I don't think that there is a decisive way to settle this uh, by such things, but I think that for those people who are troubled by God uh, uh, determining and ordaining evil, uh, that this is a very appealing view. Also on prayer, uh, the, the people who believe that our prayers can have an influence on God and can affect God, that they're going to be attracted to this uh, sort, of, sort of view. Again, this is just part of the free will uh, tradition. But mm. open theism has emphasized the aspects of God not being responsible for evil and God responding to prayer. Indeed. What's your take then on, um, is God responsible for evil? Um, James on Calvinist view? Well, I, I don't like putting it in, in tradition concepts because mm. uh, I, I do believe that there... I, I do not believe that the Bible is un, is underdetermined on this issue. I believe that there is clear statements in Scripture that uh, God says that he does uh, whatever pleases him in the heavens and the earth, uh, and he says that within the context of uh, some pretty... Uh, strong actions of his in the Old Testament. I mean, mm. look, when we start talking about destruction of the Amorites, when we start talking about destruction of the firstborn in Egypt, issues along those lines, you know as well as I, because I've heard of a lot of programs on Unbelievable, where there are discussions about, well, was God moral in the, de in the destructions of these nations mm -hmm. and so on and so forth? Uh, I think uh, the only consistent way of dealing with those things is to have a very strong sense of God's accomplishment of his purpose, because if he's just sort of responding to things and putting things together uh, as man is doing things, then we have all sorts of unintended uh, and purposeless evil in God's creation that he knew when he brought this creation into existence might happen, mm. has no purpose, no redemptive purpose whatsoever. But it just so happened that it almost got out of God's control. I don't believe that there is any such thing as purposeless evil in God's creation. 
And I believe that when you read Isaiah and you don't limit it to just the restoration of the people of Israel, and, and I just don't see how you can read Isaiah 41 because, in, in that way. I, I didn't get a chance to go back to that, but mm. Isaiah 41 is not limited. It's, it discusses the, the, the restoration of the people of Israel, but the challenge of the false gods is not limited to that in any, in any stretch of the imagination. When you allow that its full-orbed uh, teaching, uh, then I think you see what's behind Ephesians chapter 1. Can, can and you God's see why, at just a kind of, I suppose, moral level, though, people might, like John Wesley did, find their blood runs cold at the Again, idea of God uh, being responsible for, my, my blood runs for, cold, for, my, for horrible acts. My blood runs cold at the idea of a God that would create this world that did not have a purpose and all these things, especially if he knew it could happen. Right. That that's what you makes don't, my you blood don't kind of cold. win by by becoming uh, I don't, an open theist. I, I don't think sense. so, and and I say that as a as a person who uh, worked as a hospital chaplain mm. uh, and had to take this into the CCU uh, into you know being asked to do funerals and so on and so forth. I, it, it's not just a theological you know let's let's have sure. the uh, Calvinist Arminian argument. Mm. Uh, when I first was asked to to be a hospital chaplain, I started doing that work. I had sleepless nights because the vast majority of the books that I read basically said, you need to separate God from these things. And I was left going, how can I look someone in the eye and say God is, has a purpose for the rest of your life if this great tragedy just came about and he didn't have a purpose and for it, that? And it was essentially accidental. Exactly. Right. Uh, John, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, the idea that every rape, every murder, every child abuse uh, you know, is part of God's great plan, uh, wow, okay. Uh, if you find comfort in that... Uh, you know, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know but, how to argue but, against it. But, 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 but John, say, but is it... You had your say. Okay. Let, let's, we'll allow John to finish, and then you can come back, James. <laughs> okay. So uh, there are those, again, in the free will tradition who find that uh, is not a, a god of love. And they say, you know, a, a loving parent would not uh, ordain cruelty to, to a child. That's the antithesis of love. And so the a uh, common uh, you know, argument back is, well, but this is God we're talking about, and God has the right to do this. And, uh, but on the free will side, it's, well, that's not love. So we think that a loving God does not ordain all the rapes, murders, and child abuse that's going on in the world. And well, we think that is the clear biblical teaching. Yeah, uh, and, and let me just point out, uh, when, you just, when you just limit things to the emotional, the, the rapes, uh, the child abuses, rather than the full realm of evil. Um, I, I think that's a, a prejudicial uh, thing that maybe I feel the same way about that that you felt about the comment that I made earlier. But my point is, when you look at the cross, if you don't see uh, what God's love does there in the giving of his own son uh, and the depth of, of that self-giving as being a part of his purpose from the start, um, I, see, I can't even understand the idea of incarnation without the self-giving aspect of it. Because, you know, I don't, I don't know what Dr. Sanders does with the text of Revelation, the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, or he just doesn't take it to be translated that way. But um, I certainly think that that's the best way to understand it. And if that was just an ad hoc thing where God knew it was a possibility but didn't know and, and wasn't certain, uh, it just completely changes um, the, the, the God that I see revealing himself in Jesus Christ. We're going to have to start to draw it to a close, gentlemen. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. I've, I've learned a lot in the course of the hour that we've we've had together. Um, John, um, any final thoughts as we close out today's program and perhaps suggestions of where people who want to explore open theism a bit more could turn? Yes, they can go to uh, 
a uh, number of websites. Uh, Greg Boyd has one, uh, and uh, my own website, which is drjohnsanders.com, um, and they can find information there. Um, as well as we have a number of books where we do answer passages about Revelation 13 and others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, The Got You Risk is one of my books. Uh, the Openness of God is another uh, one, and Greg Boyd's uh, The God of the Possible is a very nice, uh, helpful introduction for lay people. Thank you very much for being on the program today. Um, if people want to uh, read something that... that expresses your opinion what's the kind of book the primer that you would recommend james well there have been a number of books written in response of course to uh, to open theism in the past you know 15 20 years i didn't write one of them mm. uh but i would recommend that people listen to uh, the debate between dr sanders and myself from reformed theological seminary uh it's available online uh, there is a fascinating debate that I did with a, ba- a fellow by the name of Bob Enyart uh, on open theism just about a year and a half ago. Or it might have been two and a half years. I'm like, getting getting <laughs> too old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, John was shocked that it had been 15 <laughs> years since we had done, done that debate. So, um, and in that one especially, uh, there some fascinating issues came up that we didn't get to talk about. For example. Mm. If free will is so important, could there have been a dis- could Jesus have disobeyed the Father mm. because he was truly a man? Mm. Uh, that becomes an issue that, that that comes up in that particular a- encounter. So I think some of the debates where you get to hear both sides uh, would be very useful. Well, Other than Bruce Ware's books, that's and things always like that. what we recommend on Unbelievable. Obviously, the place where you always get to hear both sides of the debate, and we certainly have heard that today. Thank you very much, John, for being with us on the program today, and uh, and thank you very much, James, for coming into studio as well. All the very best, guys. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Thank you, everyone, who's been getting in touch recently about the program last week, particularly between David Robertson and Mike Rand, where we asked, why can't Mike quite believe Mike being the agnostic that David was chatting to through the program? Well, that's received a lot of feedback, um, both online. You can find hundreds of responses underneath the program at the website, Premier Christian Radio dot com slash unbelievable uh, and uh, we're still getting stuff in by email as well if you want to email about today's program as i'm sure many will want to unbelievable at premier.org.uk is of course the place to do that and equally i'm happy to look at your responses on the facebook and twitter account as well at unbelievable jb to follow me on twitter facebook.com slash unbelievable jb for the facebook page and um, uh, i'll read out some of the facebook comments uh, that we've had in regard to last week's show firstly though uh, someone who wants to remain anonymous got in touch with me saying how unbelievable has really had an influence in the ch- a change in their theological trajectory says i've been listening to your program for the last couple of years it's been very instrumental in huge changes in my life back in 2011 i got hired as an assistant pastor at a calvary chapel and i've grown up in calvaries my whole life i've always had questions but for the most part i just believed my pastors because i looked up to them but i remember a couple of years ago asking myself what are the odds i grew up in the right religion and the right denomination of that particular religion kind of a strange question for an assistant pastor to ask himself i know Uh, and after this journey of a couple of years i find myself in a completely different worldview and theological camp than i was five years ago i started listening to your podcast hearing very intellectual christians started asking serious questions about things like jesus's Olivet Discourse and why he said that his return would happen soon. I started listening to a lot of N.T. Wright and slowly started changing my mind about things, starting with pre-tribulational rapture and finally ending up where I am now, basically, as a preterist 
covenantal theology non-literalist, basically the furthest from Calvary one could get in the Christian faith. Uh, and in my search for people of like mind, I've, I've stumbled upon different movements happening in my area of the world. Uh, it's been a long and crazy journey for me and my family of four. My wife has had to deal with me in my change. And right now I'm basically living under the radar, trying to minister and serve people that don't share many of the same beliefs at me. Uh, I could definitely use some prayer. All, all of this to say I'd love a talk between maybe someone like Tim Mackey and a real Calvary evangelical just to explore differences in their worldviews and how they read the Bible, stuff like that. Uh, so anyway, um, thank you very much for getting in touch. As I said, I'm going to keep your name anonymous because I think you wanted me to. But um, yes, uh, listening to Unbelievable can cause uh, theological changes. Um, it's probably true. And, and I, perhaps people listening to this debate on open theism and Calvinism have have had their minds swayed in, in one direction or another. Um, so um, uh, thank you for, for just opening up, though, about your own journey there. I'm going to some of that uh, feedback to last week's program. Agnostic Mike was in conversation with a longtime friend of the show, David Robertson. Uh, as ever, David Robertson provoked a sort of very different views as to, to his approach. Um, I thought it was a really fun, engaging, you know, in a sense, not terribly technical conversation, but but one which I thought we covered a lot of ground, asked a lot of the, the kind of questions that people would be asking of Christians today. Um, Maria agreed with that on Facebook, said this week's episode was my favourite. Big, basic and honest questions, great answers or attempts at answers. The honesty and respect was apparent throughout the show. I felt as if the guests were on the same page in a way, despite disagreements. Finally, I love that David said that Mike's on a journey. After all, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, Stephen on Facebook says, loved, loved, loved the programme today. Really enjoy hearing about Mike's journey and his questions i also empathized with his observations of the church could i make a suggestion i think mike might enjoy reading the ragamuffin gospel by brennan manning manning also had troubles with alcoholism he mentions at the beginning of his book that he's always thought church should be more like an aa meeting he also notes how many of the burning theological issues in the church are neither burning nor theological it seems that i heard those sentiments echoed by mike he might really get something out of the ragamuffin gospel it's one of the books along with mere christianity that are radically shaped my life incidentally i was profound it profoundly impacted rich mullins too showed me a deeper side to jesus and grace than i'd ever known thanks for such a wonderful program uh, gareth says uh, that mike should come to the vineyard church it's not as structured and along with many believers we have non-believers and those with limited faith in the congregation praise god uh, mike sounds like a really nice sincere guy it'd be great that he could connect with a vineyard church i really believe there are lots of denominations because there are people at different stages in their faith and different preferences of how to act out that faith he'll find many people who want to share their faith practically and um, chris goswami says uh, he found the episode very listenable and rewarding covering so many topics in one program is a great alternative to the deep dive that sometimes becomes a bit unwieldy at least for me trying to follow it while driving uh, david robertson in non-combative easygoing mode gave me a masterclass in apologetics although i can see others disagree in the comments that's right there are a lot of comments underneath uh, the show of, of last week uh, chris and uh, a lot of them very critical of David as well. But you say, from my own experience and listening to Unbelievable for a few years, I do think that some people seem hardwired never to believe in God, whatever arguments you present before them, while others seem hardwired to believe no matter what counter evidence they see. So, for example, for me, the answer to the question, why doesn't God show himself more clearly in the world, screams at me when I simply stop and listen to the birdsong in my local park or look out of my window at the pink blossom in my garden. This hardwiring is difficult to break through with arguments and it's the personal stories of god in 
impacting individual lives and seeing the difference in those lives that is really needed to make a connection. Thank you, Chris. Um, Sam says, uh, as always, uh, this week's episode with Mike and David, wonderful conversation. Early on, Mike said something I loved. He said that he believes that Jesus is the holiest of all humans. And while I believe that he is Lord, we see in John one thirty seven the first disciples call him rabbi, a.k.a. teacher, and start following him. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is always, first of all, seen as a great teacher before he's ever seen as Lord. And I have an answer to each of Mike's questions, but the one that jumped out the most is, why doesn't God provide proof of himself? to us i'd argue that he does but only for those that are willing jesus is always inviting others into relationship with him it's through this relationship that he provides proof for himself in the case of the rich young man jesus doesn't end by telling him to sell everything he ends then come and follow me Here's a thought from Micah, uh, says, I wanted to comment on the portion about the atonement. When David said that atonement was necessary for God to justly forgive sins, Mike rightly asked the question, well, where's the justice in a man who lived a perfect life, the very son of God, suffering a barbaric death? David responded first with the common analogy of Jesus paying our fine, and then an explanation of penal substitution, the theory that Jesus suffered our punishment. Well, in my experience, the debt or fine analogy resonates with most people, but penal substitution often still doesn't make sense to them. Intuition tells us that an innocent person taking someone else's punishment, even voluntarily, is a violation of justice, not a means of achieving it. But someone paying another person's fine seems perfectly just. I believe that Jesus' sacrifice functions as a reparation, much like paying a fine. Jesus offered his sinless life to God to right the wrongs of humanity on their behalf. This is the so-called satisfaction theory of the atonement, which was the predominant view in the Western Church before penal substitution came along. You say you'd love to hear a debate on the reparation or satisfaction theory uh, on, on, on that whole issue. Thank you very much, Micah. Um, we'll probably be covering the issue again of the atonement at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Corey, who's an atheist, says, in the most recent episode, the guests and yourself spoke about what would be required in order to demonstrate to everyone that God God really does exist. It was then suggested that atheists in this situation typically fail to give any sort of plausible hypothetical scenario that would be sufficient to this end. Well, firstly, it seems to me that even if this was the case, that we couldn't come up with an adequate scenario ourselves, uh, this is not to say that an omnipotent, omniscient being couldn't himself think of and then engineer the requisite circumstances for such a revolution in belief. I, for one, have a very hard time believing that a Christian could really think that's an impossible task for God. And secondly, to propose a scenario what if god say appeared to everyone simultaneously all around the world in so doing miraculously preventing the inevitable disasters and accidents that would otherwise have ensued when most so many people suddenly become distracted all at once would that not be sufficient uh, i guess maybe it kind of depends on on you know at what level someone's skepticism functions doesn't it Corey? i do know people who seem to go down the line of saying you know almost anything that that involved that could be passed off as a just a mass hallucination could be passed off as just my, my imagining that that's happened myself having a, a brain delusion or whatever um but anyway uh, interesting thoughts karim in melbourne has a question for david um has a problem at least with david's defense that the one true way to god is through jesus he uses arithmetic as an analogy that is that the only correct answer to the problem of two plus two is four there is no other answer however there are lots of ways to get to the number four actually there are an infinite number of ways to get there 100 minus 96 800 divided by 200 and so on perhaps if salvation is the number four there are an infinite but nonetheless correct ways to get there uh, asks karim 
But there have been some critical responses to David as well, of course. Uh, Glenn, who uh, says, I must contribute to the status quo by pointing out why I think David Robertson is so polarizing. He is likable and respectful most of the time. However, I can't help but feel like he gets away with metaphorical murder when he enters into these debates. Mike's questions were valid, even if not as strong as they could have been coming from an agnostic layperson. That's forgivable. But David's answers were the usual stock standard one size fits all variety. And he often proposes an answer that addresses a tangential related issue but not the actual issue in question and uh, you go on to talk about um, the, the, the idea of why God doesn't prove that he exists um, the justice and forgiveness of sin and you take issue with a number of the ways in which David responded to those Glenn no time I'm afraid time doesn't allow to read out all of your email um, but David did want to get in touch uh, to convey his thoughts on the program says I want to thank you for the show Justin and all those who've responded it clearly touched a nerve perhaps I could say a couple of things to the critics firstly please argue against what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying one critic even had me down as a young earth creationist who believed in an old earth uh, secondly please don't critique Mike or others like him for not being as smart or on the ball or aggressive as you the ultimate keyboard warrior mike did a great job he was insightful intelligent and articulate it seems to me a fairly similar pattern when i'm on unbelievable i come on the show and the atheist keyboard warriors complain that the person i'm debating or dialoguing with was not as good as they would have been and once again my idiotic remarks were let off the hook only of course to be corrected by the wise ones online anyway i don't want to allow what was for me an excellent show to be spoiled by such negativity mike was a fabulous guest he came across well because he's a genuinely great guy as he seeks christ i just rejoice that those who seek the Lord will find him and that does not depend on me but on the Holy Spirit being at work time and eternity will tell once again thanks to you Mike and all the listeners who responded especially those who offered a constructive critique I live and learn anyway we all do don't we to some extent thank you very much if you got in touch as well and apologies I can't read all the emails every week but uh, look forward to you joining me again at the same time next week if you can let me tell you what's coming up then you're unbelievable <laughs> James White joins me again, this time in a sort of grill a James White show. Uh, We're going to be putting a number of listener queries to him. Questions on Calvinism. Is God the author of evil and the Reformation? So hope you can come back for that. Until then, have a great week and we'll see you next time for Unbelievable. Unbelievable.